The last time we looked at the story of Joseph, which was about uh, three weeks ago now, we watched Joseph's interaction with his brothers in an attempt to determine whether he was being vindictive and spiteful or whether there was something much more going on. If nothing else, Joseph's tears told us plainly that Joseph had forgiven his brothers in his heart, but was looking for an opportunity to reconcile his relationship with them. And everything he did from the moment he first saw them was an attempt to reconcile that relationship. And we can learn so much from that already. Joseph knew that the only way he could attain that reconciliation is if his older brothers had truly repentant hearts. And so we talked a great deal about repentance and reconciliation and especially forgiveness, a Christian virtue. The scriptures give us two distinct aspects of forgiveness. Number one is this, the forgiveness we can have in our hearts toward the one who has done us wrong, even if they are totally unrepentant. The Bible talks about that type of forgiveness, that we can forgive someone who doesn't even care if they hurt us because Christ forgave us while we were still enemies. And so we can, by God's power, inwardly forgive those that have done us harm, even if they don't regret what they've done. That's one aspect of forgiveness. The other aspect of forgiveness is this. The kind of forgiveness we openly declare when someone comes to us sorrowfully and and they do this so that our relationship with them can be reconciled, repaired, fixed, made new again. And the scriptures clearly indicate that there's both of those types of forgiveness that are really vitally important. Today, we're going to look at the kinds of things the human heart devises to deal with the guilt of sin and how useless they are. Next Sunday, I believe, is the 23rd. And under any normal circumstances, next Sunday, I would bring a Christmas message. I have to apologize to you guys right now. The next message on Joseph, I can't keep in any longer. I've been looking forward to that message for so terribly long, I cannot wait through the holidays to try and bring it in the new year. I can't. It's sitting in here waiting to get out because it's just so huge. So you're not going to get specifically a Christmas message on the 23rd. I'm sorry. If you need a Christmas message, come on the 24th in the evening. But I can't keep it in any longer. My wife was like, well, you're going to give a 23rd. You're going to give a Christmas message, right? And I said, I don't think I can. I I can't wait that long. I had planned on giving that message today. I've been sitting and and battling through this story of Joseph. And and I thought we were going to get to this idea today. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't cram it in. And I wasn't going to rush it. And so I'm going to just lead up into what I think is the absolute climax of the message of Joseph for next week. So I'm sorry. If you need a a distinctly Christmas message, you're going to have to come the following day or you're going to have to go somewhere else. I I don't like to say that because I want you all here, 
but I can't do it. I can't keep it in any longer. It's ready. It's sitting there. It's waiting. And I think, and I think it's very applicable to uh, the whole Christmas story, but it's bursting out, and it's, it's not going to stay in there that long. I can't do it. And so that, that's the plan. I, just, I, I'm, I, I truly do apologize, but it is the way it is, and uh, I hope that you guys can forgive me, <laughs> even if I'm unrepentant. I hope you guys can forgive me <laughs> in your hearts. Turn in your Bibles, please, to um, Genesis 42. Genesis 42, we're going to read verses 27 through 29. Then we're going to skip a little bit because um, the next few verses are a, are a repetition of what we've already read while, while the sons are explaining to Jacob what they went through with Joseph. So we'll just skip that through um, because it's quite a long reading. And then from verse 29, we'll skip to 35, and then we'll continue from there. So Genesis 42 beginning in verse 27. They had left Joseph. They thought they had paid for their food, and they're on their way home. They opened their sacks. So here it is. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money, and there it was in the mouth of his sack. So he said to his brothers, my money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, What is this that God has done to us? Then they went to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan and told him all that had happened to them. And then they went on to say what had taken place between them and Joseph. So then skip down to 35. Then it happened as they emptied their sacks, that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now the famine was severe in the land, and it came to pass, when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. But Judah spoke to him, saying, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, Why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you still had another brother? But they said, the man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him according to these words, Could we possibly have known that he would say, Bring your brother down? Then Judah said to Israel his father, Send the lad with me, 
and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned the second time. And their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man. A little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also and arise. Go back to the man. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your other brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for another opportunity to look into this beautiful story. Thank you for the life of Joseph. Thank you that by your spirit you caused it to be written down exactly as we have it today. And we are so grateful that we can look at your word and see it as an absolute anchor, unchanging, unwavering, while everything else around us is falling apart. We are just so grateful. And we pray that by your spirit, you would open our eyes to your truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Guilt. Guilt is universal. Everyone feels guilt. Now, there are some folks that say there might be some mental illness like um, psychopaths and so on that don't feel guilt. I, I, don't, I don't entirely buy that. There seems to be evidence that there's uh, minimized guilt. But in any case, that's the exception, not the rule. The rule is that everybody feels guilt. Now, there's one of two explanations. Either it's an illusion just because we're human or guilt is real. Those are the only two options. Uh, it seems to me when I look at my own guilt that it's absolutely real. I'm not fooling myself about my guilt. It is there and it needs, it demands to be dealt with. What we see in this passage very often is that these men are bothered by their conscience. They, they're bothered by their conscience. And there's a few things I want to touch on. I'm not going into in depth into what a conscience is. I, I could, but I, I don't. I don't think that's needful right now. But one thing that we know about our consciences is that they always look beyond the material. There's something about a conscience that isn't worried about just things. There's much more to a conscience than material. If guilt transmitted to us by our conscience were purely material, then when these men opened their sacks and saw the money, they would have rejoiced. Yay, we got our money back. Because the conscience would have said, hey, you've got your material, whatever material you needed back. This is a great thing. But that is not what happened. They opened their sacks, they saw the money, and this is instantly what they did. What is this that God has done to us? What is this that God has done to us? They instantly saw that there was a much bigger problem than just some money. 
That's uh, chapter 42, verse 28. What has God done to us? And we've all experienced this, haven't we? Something has happened in our lives, some tragic thing, something that really threw us off our rails. And our instant reaction was, what is this that God is doing? Whether we're blaming or whether we're just wondering. What is going on that's beyond what I can see? Because something is going on in here and it's not material. It's not about getting rich or being comfortable. Something has happened. The other thing we notice about these brothers is the only time they felt guilty is when they got caught. Don't we see this a lot in today's society? Somebody gets caught doing something stupid or evil and then they magically feel guilty. And they ought to. But these men, their consciences only bothered them when they got caught. The difference here is I think they got caught by God. Opened the sacks. What has God done to us? And so there's some legitimacy about getting caught and dealing with it. Um, We ought to recognize that it's God that catches us anyway as Christians. The other thing I notice about this is that there is no time limit on guilt. And we know this, don't we? This was 13 years after they betrayed Joseph and sold him. And when they opened the sack and saw the money, the first thing they thought of was Joseph. God's dealing with us. We dealt poorly with our brother. We're getting our comeuppance. We have earned what has happened. 13 years did not diminish their guilt. God has a solution for your guilt, and that solution is not time. If you're waiting for your guilt to go away, you're waiting in vain, because something's going to happen, and it's going to bring it back fresh, because God hasn't given up on you yet. Time is not the solution to your guilt. And it will never work to deal with your guilt. Time can deal with some other pain. When you cut your finger, it hurts and it throbs and you wait and you leave it. And after a while, it goes away, develops some scar tissue. Time is a great healer, not for guilt. Not for guilt. Not only were these men bothered by their consciences, they were bothered by the famine. Look at the first verse in chapter 43. The famine was severe in the land. Jacob is told by his sons that there's no way they can, pardon me, go back to Egypt without Benjamin. If we look really carefully back a few verses in chapter 42, verse 36, we look up what Jacob said. Jacob is beginning to guess what happened to Joseph. You guys have deprived me of Joseph. You guys have deprived me of Simeon. And now you want to deprive me of Benjamin as well. Jacob is beginning to guess. Something happened. And they lied about it. Something happened and you guys lied about it. And he didn't say it directly, but it's pretty plain from his words that he's beginning to suspect that it was 
those that he loved betraying him who he loved. And it was ripping his family apart. Guilt and bitterness begin to tear Jacob's family apart, as they always will. Do you have guilt and bitterness in your family? It's going to tear your family apart. You need to deal with it. And time isn't going to do it. The longer you wait, the less chance there are there is that you're going to deal with it. Don't let guilt and bitterness tear your family apart. God has a solution. We'll get there. In point three, letter D. God has a solution. We'll get there. But it's not time. I came across a wonderful word uh, this week as I was studying. It's a British word. The British use it often. It's daft. And it's way better with a British accent, I assure you. And it's used to describe something that's so stupid, it's almost not worth talking about. And they use it in Parliament. That's a daft suggestion. So it makes so much more sense in, in the British. It's, a, it's such a descriptive, wonderful word, I had to use it. Because that's what Reuben comes up with. Reuben comes up with a daft suggestion to deal with their guilt and hunger. You can kill my two sons if I don't bring Benjamin back to you. Sounds noble, doesn't it? I'm so good that you can kill my two sons if I don't deliver on my promise. Absolutely daft. Doft. What he's saying is, if things go poorly, Dad, you're going to lose Joseph and Simeon and Reuben and two grandsons and everybody else. Not as noble as we thought when he said, hey, you can kill my son. Jacob stands to lose everything if he says, oh, Reuben, you're such a hero. Daft. Best description for it. So stupid, it's almost not worth talking about. And yet, here's Reuben bringing it up. Look at, look at Reuben. <laughs> look at poor Reuben trying to deal with his guilt. Poor Reuben. Nothing Reuben offers will appease his conscience and relieve his hunger. Nothing we have to offer will ease our guilty consciences, even if we offer to give up that which we value the most to God. God, I have so much money, I give it all to you. God, I have so much time, I give it all to you. God, I have these valuable things, I give it all to you. It doesn't do it. It doesn't deal with your guilt, no matter how much you try. By the way, that's what every single religion, with the exception of Christianity, tries to do to deal with guilt. God, I give you this, I give you this, I give you this, I give you this. Now I shouldn't feel so guilty. Even, even in Judaism, I'm going to slaughter this animal and this animal and this animal and this animal. And we learned that they kept slaughtering animals because they still felt guilty. Nothing they had to offer could deal with their guilt. Nothing. Nothing you have to offer is going to deal with your guilt either. There is nothing you have that's so valuable to God that he's going to accept it and say, okay, your guilt is dealt with. Nothing. Everybody learns this because we all are dealing with guilt. 
we all learned that no matter how much we give to God, we do something wrong and we still live with the guilt. We all know this, but we all deal with it in different ways. Now what do we do? We, we've given up something that was valuable to us and we still feel guilt. What do we do? Well, we drown our conscience in alcohol. We dull our conscience with drugs. We ignore our conscience with entertainment. But wherever you go, there you are. The alcohol wears off and you feel doubly guilty. The drug wears off and you feel doubly guilty. The entertainment runs out and you feel doubly guilty. And so you find more alcohol and more drugs and more entertainment so that you don't have to deal with this desperately pressing problem, guilt. And we all know it. There isn't a person in here that doesn't know this. We have guilt and it's pressing on us to be dealt with. And it's painful to watch, isn't it? You know where I see it? Young people, I guess, distracting them, themselves from whatever it is that's important by entertaining themselves to death. What does Jacob say? What does Jacob say to Reuben? Reuben says, Dad, I'm giving you that which I value the most, and I will go get Benjamin. I'm the hero. Jacob says, my son will not go down with you. My son will not go down with you. I'd like you to turn to Galatians, please. Galatians chapter 2. Because I think, and I'm not going to comment on it, because I think the verse itself is powerful enough to present for itself the heart of God in the story of Jacob in his answer. Many of us know Galatians 2.20. I want to look at the following verse, Galatians 2 and verse 21. Galatians 2 and verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Why would Christ die if we could earn it? If we could be the noble Reuben, give up something of ourselves, then why in the world would he send Christ to suffer the way he did? No, he would say, do you know what? You guys better get it together. You guys better live a lot better than you do because that's your salvation. Impossible, God says. If it could have come through the law, if it could have come through any other way than the extreme torment that Christ had to endure, he would have done it. But there wasn't another way. My son will not go down with you. But the famine continues to press on them. Chapter 43, 1 and 2. The famine was severe in the land, and it came to pass when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. Desperation is a great motivator. I learned this in high school when I was given assignments. Un unlike my daughter, who when she gets an assignment, 
I'm amazed. I feel guilty. She gets an assignment and she does it. That wasn't me in high school. I got an assignment. I found out when it was due. And then desperately, the night before, I, I desperately put something together that looked like a, a completion of the assignment. And yeah, desperation is a great motivator. When I didn't do that, there was only one other option. Ask for an extension. Those are my only two options. It, was, it never occurred to me that I should work on it as soon as I got the assignment. That just, it made way too much sense. It's not how I operated. But desperation is a great motivator. They were running out of food again. It was getting worse and worse and worse. God, in his grace, continues to apply pressure to move us toward the solution. Had the famine eased, this would have been the end of the story. But God, in his grace, continues to press on us, to move us. What does it take to move us toward him? And he presses, and he presses. And when God presses, it, it, that generally doesn't feel good. When, when you ask for a show of hands, who is a Christian in here because everything in their life was going so great, no hands go up. But then you ask the question, who is in here a Christian or in church today even because things were pressing on you and you needed a solution other than the ones you have found? Then all the hands go up and you would say, God pressed on me. God pressed on me. And it was hard and we didn't like it. It was uncomfortable. And yet, don't we now look and say, praise God. The grace of God that he didn't relieve the pressure. And he didn't relieve the pressure on Jacob. And then Judah says, remember Judah? Turn back a few chapters. Remember Judah? Chapter 37, if you would. Verse 26 and 27. Genesis chapter 37, 26 and 27. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill Joseph and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. Judah We don't profit if we kill him. So what can we do to make a profit and get rid of him? Judah. We didn't like Judah, did we? I particularly didn't like Judah in chapter 37. What a character. But they're getting desperate. Their hunger is getting desperate. The pressure is mounting and mounting and mounting. And then Judah says, Dad, send the boy with me. You can hold me personally accountable. If I don't bring him back, I will be guilty forever. Judah. And God begins to move in his life. What, this is what it took to move Judah. What did it take to move you?
What did it take to move me? It took God dying on a cross. God begins to move in the life of Judah. Dad, put him in my hands. I will be personally responsible. Me, my life. And Judah takes a big step toward repentance. Beginning to like Judah just a little more. I hope you are too. Jacob's move. Look at what he says. I love this. Look at what Jacob says. Genesis 43, verse 11. Some of you, I hope, will chuckle. And so their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man. A little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Typical Jacob. Do you see Jacob written all over this? Typical Jacob. How did he deal? How did he deal with uh, Laban? Laban, let's make a deal. How did he deal with Esau? Esau, let's make a deal. Later on, Esau, look, I'll send these things to you. Let me just give you a gift and somehow buy your approval. And so here he is. He's facing going back to Joseph. And he says, uh, look, let's take a few nuts. And, and we'll buy favor from him who has everything. Imagine trying to influence the rule of a world empire with a few nuts. Is this not what we do to God? God, I have this and I have this and I have this. I know you have the solution. I know you have the solution, but just take this and this and this, just a few nuts. We read later on uh, the response that Joseph has. Nothing. They offer their gift to Joseph later on. We'll get into it next week. And there's no comment on it. So they're taking a little food to him who owns all the food in the world. Typical Jacob. Typical us. The solution to our guilt and our shame stands right in front of us, right before our faces, and we try to offer to God that which adds nothing to him. And you've done it, and so have I. The solution is standing right in front of us, and we think, God, what can I give you? What can I give to him who owns the cattle on a thousand hills? A few nuts. So we see, we see our own human condition in Jacob's reaction here. We laugh at him because that's just what Jacob did. But then we, then we realize we're laughing at ourselves. We do this too. What's the solution then? I've said the solution is standing right in front of us. What's the solution then? Turn to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to read uh, two verses and then we will close. Hebrews chapter 9, two verses, verses 13 and 14. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. What is God's solution? This is, what the, this is the question we're trying to answer. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer 
sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without spot to God, and now pay attention, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. If that isn't a summary of this whole passage that we looked at today, we do everything we can to cleanse our conscience with dead works over and over and over and over again, and we find our conscience is not dealt with. And so the writer of Hebrews gives us the solution. The blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, similarly to Judah, offered himself without spot to God. And this will cleanse your conscience. And there's no other solution. That's it. You haven't got anything good enough to offer to God, no matter how hard you try. Let's pray.